Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Sans Pants Radio, Australia's happiest podcast network. Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George Demarellis. This is a show we ask you, what's your story? What's your story, and what does it say about you? Today on the show, we have an entomologist, which uh, means she studies insects with a special interest in insect behavior and e- ecology. Uh, she received her PhD in Canada and now has made the long flight over to University of Sydney. Dr. Tanya Latty, how are you? Hey, I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm I'm pretty good. Yeah, you know, it's all uh, it's all happening. You know, we're getting out of lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Yeah, that's the level of enthusiasm we all kind of have by the end. Yeah, yeah. that's usually how <laughs> yeah, it goes. It's been a long pandemic. <laughs> yeah, no, look, it, no denying that at all. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, what did you? Yeah, because you started in Canada. Did you move to University of Sydney for the research? Is there something about University of Sydney that makes it special? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the true reason is that I got a job there. So there was a job offer. I thought, yeah, Sydney sounds like a nice place to be. Um, I liked the idea of not having to deal with Canadian winter anymore, which I stand by that decision. It was it was initially supposed to be a three year contract, but uh, I'm still here, and it's been almost 14 years now. So right, okay. So so yeah, Australia is home now. Yeah. Uh, did you? Uh, you mentioned you have a husband. You married a local as well. No, so I dragged him over with me. Right. <laughs> and we, we collectively decided to stay and. Nice. Okay. So you just forced me like, no, nah, we're going. He's like, all right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. He's pretty cruisy. I was like, hey, what do you think about Sydney? And he sort of looked, nah, looks nice. It's yeah. only three years. So. <laughs> and all, but then, of course, yeah, the no winter thing, I think, is a good selling point for a lot of people. Oh, my goodness. I mean, as somebody who studies insects, this place is paradise. Like, it's amazing. You're at home during the winter time, which, you know, there's a good six, seven months of the year where it's too cold for there to even be insects outside. Whereas here, all year round, there's always something crawling around it's you know there may be fewer in the winter but they're still there and they're huge and and so diverse and uh, yeah, australia is fantastic for insect stuff <laughs> I, I think you genuinely are the first person i've ever spoken to from overseas who's been excited about the giant insects of australia <laughs> that's, that's amazing yeah okay yeah so um actually let's start with a book and then we'll jump around from there because uh like it is interesting you like yeah, we'll see what kind of connection you draw. So to start off with that, your book of choice for today is? I'm going to go with Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir. A, uh, a, I think this might be the 
freshest out of the oven book choice anyone's ever done. <laughs> to be honest, this is this is brand. This is piping hot. You know, it's just baked. Um, it looks like it's. I haven't read it. I read The Martian, um, as did it seems about half the world, and. <laughs> Uh, it. I mean, it's the same sort of thing. It's a looks like just a nonstop thrill ride sort of thing. Or how is how would you describe it? Yeah, it's similar, I think, in tone to The Martian, but it, it's quite a different theme. So The Martian, you sort of have the one person on Mars, kind of, you know, trying to fight it out with the support crew back on Earth, trying to help, and the spaceship coming. This is more. It's funny because it is sort of an apocalyptic book in the sense that something horrible has happened. You know, the Earth is in imminent peril. You know, there's this very small team of people who are going to save the planet, um, but most of them die except for him. <laughs> and so so then he's kind of left as this, you know, humanity's last hope way out there in the void. Um, at which point it kind of weirdly turns into a buddy movie because he meets an alien uh, and that he and this alien have to try to both save both their planets, essentially, and stay alive. Uh, and it goes from there. And it's it's really good. It's a really good book. It is pretty new, uh, which is probably why I chose it. It's kind of fresh in my mind, and you know, I, I love books so much. Yeah, right. <laughs> the okay. new one just sort of gets gets changes very frequently. Yeah, um, but I, I love. I really like the way Andy Weir can kind of take an apocalypse book and make it so that it's really uplifting and not a horrible like, oh, humans are the worst ever, and this is the worst thing ever, and and instead it's it's actually really happy in a lot of ways. Like there's. There's peril and, and concerns and things, but at its heart, it's two very different organisms, you know, not a human and this totally different type of creature getting together to save their homes and to save each other and becoming friends. This is very comforting, yeah. like especially living through a pandemic. It's really comforting to have that kind of fiction where, yeah, things can go bad, but humans will try to do our best to fix it. And mm. we're not terrible. That's yeah. Look, that sounds nice, and that does seem to touch upon a few of the things which uh, he had from the Marsh as well. But then developing them um, is it kind of the same sort of like hard sci-fi bend to it, where it's trying to be pretty. I know it's got aliens in it, but like apart from that, it's trying to live in the world of physics, I guess. Yeah, I think so, and I, I like that he. I guess again, as a biologist, maybe I like that the alien felt like it was a really plausible alien, and that it wasn't just a human with like a horn or an extra eye. Or, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's got a tail now. Yeah. You know, it's. It's sort of a spider-like creature that lives under much greater pressure and different temperature regimes and has an entirely different physiology, you know, than humans do. And that's part of what generates kind of the interest in the book is these two things are very different. You know, the alien has no eyes because they don't, they don't use vision at all. Um, they use echolocation, but they've got to find sort of a common, a common language and a common way of kind of addressing the world. And, and that's fascinating. So yeah, it does have a lot of that hard science elements that you can tell he really carefully thought through all of these elements, which makes it feel really, I don't know, more real. Yeah. Well, I mean, like that's, it's interesting to me straight away that uh, obviously you're in science. So like, I think any, any author who is in the hard science sci-fi sort of category would be wrapped to have any scientist being like, this is great. Cause like, <laughs> You'd be probably holding to that standard because obviously with like space opera, it's more just uh, magic in space at a lot of the time, which <laughs> nothing wrong with that. I love that as well. But uh, yeah, it's just a different thing. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I love that too. So I I'm willing to suspend my disbelief when I'm watching sci-fi. I'm like, eh, is that possible? No, but I don't care. Yeah, <laughs> but it is really nice when you read it and you go, yeah, no, that could happen. Hmm. I can see that. Yeah. I think it just adds it to more, and it makes it like gives different constraints on the story as well, which can be good in some ways instead of having the deus ex machina can cruise in at any point and just fix everything 
Yep. Well, don't tell me I haven't seen the ending. So maybe maybe this one does. I don't know. Um, did you always uh, like? Have you always been a sci-fi geek, fantasy geek, or is there any specific type of, like growing up? Oh yeah, no, I'm an old school uh, sci-fi geek. Really, um, I think I started. I think like most people around my age watching Star Trek: The Next Generation when I was a child, and I loved it. You know, and like that's the opposite of hard sci-fi, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Exclusively aliens with a horn or something, that's right. and some hair yeah, dye. Yes. Exactly. It's aliens driven entirely by like production budget. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I, I like I like thinking about future worlds and it's fun. It's just fun to imagine a universe filled, you know, with aliens or not filled with aliens. I like both those sorts of directions for sci-fi. Um I'd say most of what I read is probably science fiction now. Um I find it, yeah, pretty comforting. I'm not a huge fan of dystopian science fiction anymore, and I think that's partly because of, you know the world at the moment um yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah makes sense yeah but other types yeah no i i really i love sci-fi it's it's fun yeah no no that's uh, and like uh yeah that's kind of the fun escapist thing because i'm guessing you also probably as again as part of your career and passion you probably read a ton of non-fiction stuff so it's like whatever you want to take time off from that i just <laughs> yeah i mean I rarely read nonfiction books recreationally, mostly because yeah, I spend most of my day reading scientific papers and kind of using that kind of literature. And I just want to—I just want an escape. When I read recreationally, I just want to not have to think too hard. Yeah, again, makes perfect <laughs> sense. I kind of like, as in, yeah. Whenever I talk to anyone whose job is the reading side, they're like, "I just need the pulpiest of not thinking stuff when I'm taking my time off." So I get it. Uh, did you uh, like? Again, it's just funny because like the connection clear obviously straight away between sci-fi and the science thing. So is that like something like, did you know you wanted to be a scientist when you were like a kid, when you were a little girl, you knew from the start or was it like, oh, I'm liking sci-fi, like how did that kind of go? Yeah, I, th I think so. I remember being little, you know, I was the weird kid that was running around catching insects and snakes and things, which is safer to do in Canada, I have to point out, you know, and, you know, just yeah. bringing them home, be like, look what I found and... Yeah, I, I loved the natural world. I've always really loved biology. So I think I always knew that I wanted a career that was somewhere in sciences. I bounced around a lot. When I was younger, I wanted to be an astronaut. And then I kind of realized how deeply dangerous that is. <laughs> I was like, nope, maybe not. Is it dangerous like in terms of like what the actual danger to life? Yeah, well, I think it's just, it's a scary thing. You're sitting on this rocket and then you go blasting into this void, which is like fundamentally hostile to life. And then you hang out there for a few days and hope for the best. It, uh, I don't know. <laughs> the mortality rate is too high. Also, I guess when I was a kid, the challenger happened as well. So I think that was probably a little bit more front of mind that these things can go very bad very quickly. You know? Yeah, that um, would have been a... Yeah, I can't even imagine what that would have been like to see. That's, <laughs> yeah, un unpleasant. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah, that's the fact that just a focused event where everyone says, yeah, I can't imagine that. I think a lot of people would have had parents say, you're not going to be an astronaut anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's like, and we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> like, I'm fairly certain I'm probably too short to be an astronaut anyway. So, you know, uh, and I have terrible vision. So there were other reasons. In but, okay, um, <laughs> right. It's making more sense. At the time, yeah. So then I think from there, it was more that I wanted to be a veterinarian because I thought that would be kind of fun. And then I did um, like an internship at a veterinarian and realized I really didn't want to be a vet. <laughs> this is just not, not my speed. Um, and yeah, then went to university and studied biology and environmental science and loved that. I loved all the units of study I took that involved invertebrates and just the sheer diversity of invertebrate life is mind boggling, like millions of species 
you know, most of which we haven't even identified yet. So there's just this huge scope for discovery. Um, and yeah, and then the rest is, I guess, history. I did my PhD and then moved here. Right. It, I mean, that's straight away. We haven't discovered most yet. Oh my goodness. So we, at best, we've probably named about 20% of the invertebrates in Australia and probably a little less globally. Like it's, it's wild. <laughs> we don't, I mean, if you wanted to find a new species, you legit could go out in your backyard. And if you knew what to look for, you could probably find a new species that hadn't been formally named. It's, it's a gargantuan task. I think we often massively underestimate how diverse, you know, even insects, we just focus on insects as a subgroup of invertebrates, massively underestimate how many there are. You know, we're looking 5 million species. Again, conservative could be hugely higher. I mean, it's just, it's, yeah, it's wild. <laughs> That's, yeah. I mean, I've heard that uh, before the... Um uh, I remember because, like, is it a quarter of all species on the planet are beetles? Is that right? Yeah. Well, so plot twist. So they're about a quarter of all, yeah, animal life we think is a is a beetle because the beetles are this massively diverse group. Mm. But recently, the wasp people have pointed out that for every species of beetle, <laughs> there is at least one parasitoid that lives inside that species. So parasitoid wasps are like the aliens, like you know, old school horror movie aliens of the insect world. They lay their eggs inside of other insects. And then that larva develops inside, eats all the internal organs, and then bursts out in like a terrible, quite horrific scene. Okay. Uh, and that's how they make their living. But most parasitoids are specific to a very small group um, of species. And so if you imagine that most species have at least one parasitoid and sometimes several then there almost has to be more parasitoid wasps than beetles, which would make them the largest group of animals by a fair margin. But they're so understudied because they're, they're, some of them are tiny. I mean, one of the um, uh, parasitoids is roughly the same size as a paramecium or an amoeba. So they're, you know, they're, some of them are tiny. Hmm. They're just barely visible, so, which makes them difficult to study. So there's this huge, huge, huge diversity that we know or suspect exists, but you know, it's probably a lot higher even than that. Yeah, I mean that's a. I actually, this was something I read about. Um, but, and it, it, this is depressed. This is dystopian, depressing fact. But I remember reading it being like the the tragic thing is right now because of the fact that no one realized how few of the species of the world we've cataloged, we're losing so many that we don't even know <laughs> what they were. Yeah. And it's like that's just yeah, that sucks. That's the thing. Like, we're we're almost certainly losing species at a faster rate than we're naming them. Mm, so we're like so there are species that will pass into extinction without ever having been found. We'll just mm. never know that they were there. Because that's like, would you know? So I know your field is in uh, insect invertebrates, but uh, in terms of actual animals, we found all those, right? <laughs> or is it the same? <laughs> well, invertebrates are animals. So that's the first okay, thing okay. I'm going to say. They are 98% of animals are invertebrates. So arguably, <laughs> it's a question of whether mammals count. <laughs> okay, okay, that's that's a very fair. That's a very fair point. I'm sorry, I should have. You been, may have hit a nerve. I, it sounds like I did, to be honest. That's, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, in terms of vertebrates, then how's that? Large scale vertebrates is that? Yeah, so safer vertebrates space? we've we're doing a lot better. So if you look at the percentage of mammals, for example, that we've named, we're we're pretty close to like the ninety percent mark, I suspect. Um, and same for things like birds, we're doing pretty well. Fish, I think, is a bit lower, but still much much better than the invertebrates. Mm. So for big things, I think humans are pretty good at finding big things. I mean, it, it's hard to miss an elephant, but <laughs> You know, funny thing about that, 
is that even the species we think we know well, there's a sometimes cryptic diversity. So two species might look very similar, but when you look at the genetics, you realize that they're actually not related at all and they don't interbreed and they're completely different. And that that happened with giraffes where I think we went from having one species to like 10 or something insane like that. Um, and elephants where we went from having two to three because it turns out there was this hidden diversity that we weren't seeing um, because it wasn't, it wasn't visible. It was more genetic diversity and, and traits that we weren't really looking at. Mm. So, so we've done pretty well, but not, we still don't have all of still them. Still not great there, not yeah, even. but not like, yeah, invertebrates where it's really, uh, it really needs some work. Um, the, uh, actually, uh, but on that point though, I guess, and this is me, uh, I guess putting on my hard, my cruel hat. I guess in some ways, because I guess the people, I 100% agree that the study of knowledge in general is amazing and beautiful, and I think that's enough on its own to do anything. But I guess things some people would say is, um, you know, why, why, what's the for this? Why do we need to know all of these species, or why is it beneficial? I guess in that sense, because I'm sure you've yeah. probably heard and you've got an answer oh, to that so many times. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so many times. Which is funny because no one ever asks like, what is the point of saving koalas? Mm-hmm. Like that never comes up. No one. You never need a reason to save vertebrates. It's like a teddy bear. But we somehow need to have a reason to save invertebrates. Mm-hmm. But the answer is that they do all the things. So there's this famous quote from E.O. Wilson that in insects are the little things um, that hold up the world, and that's entirely true. So pollination, most um, many plants are dependent on insects. The vast majority are dependent on insects um, for at least some of their pollination, including lots of our crops. Um, so we need them for food and especially things like fruit that provide all these really important micronutrients that we need. We need them to recycle our waste. We would be like neck deep in our own waste within a very short order if we didn't have all of these insects kind of working as our waste management crew, breaking things down and returning those nutrients into the soil, which we need to be able to, again, grow crops and plants and all of that. We need insects um, you know, as part of the food chain. So lots of the things that people like feed on insects, at least some level. Um, even carnivores that are feeding on other vertebrates, you know, the, those, the vertebrates they're feeding on are often feeding on insects. So, you know, they're also this sort of really important level of the food chain. So, you know, it, and again, it's funny to me when people ask that, because again, 98% of animals are invertebrates. So we're essentially saying that we don't care about 98% of animals. Um, and this is coming from people often who are animal lovers and say, oh, I love nature, but I hate insects. It's like, eh, that's not going to work though. <laughs> that is, yeah. yeah I mean, no, those are not compatible positions. So yeah, I think, I think we underestimate what insects do. We couldn't have a society without them. You know, there's, you know, I've been asked the question of, well, what would happen if all the insects disappeared? And it's just, it wouldn't be good is the short <laughs> answer. I mean, I can't even imagine how we would continue on as a society if all the insects went away, but I mean, we're talking again about millions and millions of species and a huge amount of biomass. It's not, you know, just losing one thing. It's losing you know, most of our biodiversity in that case. Yeah. I mean, that, that question seems to me so silly. Like I could yeah. argue you could be having an interesting discussion about one, like how vital is one type to the world, but like all, everything would die immediately. Like, as in, right. Yeah, like you can't transfer, you can't do anything. You can't look after, yeah, like you said, food, unless you just, everyone lives in domes and the food gets pumped. But even that, I feel like- Even that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they're related to us somehow as well. Who knows? Yeah, that's- 
Okay. Um, the, yeah. So all the things. Insects do all the things. All the things. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's I know that's why I went in gently with the way I was phrasing the question because I knew uh, you've probably had it before. It's like, oh, why insect? So you you did mention you were the weird kid um, obsessed with the animals. Was that does that include insects when you were younger? Oh yeah, that was mostly insects. I would say. Okay. Um, I feel like insects are a great gateway animal for curious kids because they're so accessible, right? Everybody, even if you live in an apartment, you can go to the park. And, you know, find heaps of insects, heaps of species. And, you know, that that's not something you can say for a lot of big vertebrates. You know, if you live in the city, you may not have I don't know, wallabies hopping around your backyard, but you will have a whole jungle full of insects. You know, you'll have, again, species that maybe nobody knows anything about. Like you can walk outside, pick an insect and watch it. And I guarantee you will make discoveries about that insect that nobody else knows um, because we just don't know that much. Mm. So I feel like they're really... They're such a fun group of organisms to get people excited about biodiversity and excited about science. Um, yeah, much. Yeah, they're they're great. <laughs> I might be biased. Sure. Yeah. Great. Oh, we've definitely picked up on that by now. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not up for question. That's uh, um, the yeah because I'm trying to actually drawing a connection between the book and what you mentioned earlier and this insect stuff because the this sounds actually yeah this sounds strange but basically insects are very. As well, apart from apparently octopodes, which are apparently the most, but uh, insects are a very alien creature to humans. You know what I mean? Like, as in, in terms of understanding them, they're very, very different from mm-hmm. us. And you've mentioned already twice about like the astronaut and the space, like alien things, and then also Andy Weir's book that we're discussing and how well it captures it in terms of this spider. So, was that is that a fascination? Is that part of it an element for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I like, I love that again. The alien is just really properly alien. And it's a body plan that I can imagine being very common out there, like arthropods, you know, jointed limbs, you know, kind of an exoskeleton works really well. You know, that's why we see the sort of diversity we see in invertebrates um, and insects in particular. So it kind of makes sense to me that that would be the kind of life form we might encounter. But I mean, I guess how spoilery are we allowed to be here? <laughs> Uh, because because this is so new that I feel bad Ooh. at doing too much spoiler. So maybe like anything up to like halfway through the book, I guess, okay. would be acceptable. Well, I won't say specifically, thing. but there are instances in the book where misunderstandings about the other individual's physiology cause problems, and I like that. I think that's the kind of problem you would have where you make assumptions based on your own physiology, and you kind of, you know, you you realize you're dealing with an alien, but you don't quite make the the mental shift and you may do something that doesn't work as well as you think. Um, And, you know, insects are very much like that. I mean, even things like how they breathe. I mean, the number of times people have talked to me about seeing, you know, insects breathing through their mouths or their noses, that's not where they breathe. They have little holes on their abdomens that they breathe through. So, you know, it's, it's a totally different respiratory system. And so when you see that, it can be, it takes that time to kind of figure out like, this is a very different organization. You know, even, the fact that quite a few insects are relatively happy without their heads. <laughs> like, you know, they'll die of starvation eventually, but things like cockroaches can go weeks if they don't bleed to death, which they rarely do because their blood isn't under pressure. So, you know, it's not that they, they bleed out when they lose their heads, you know, and their nervous system is a lot more distributed than ours is. So even without the heads, like, well, like it's inconvenient. <laughs> it's not the end of the world, you know, and, and that's a really alien and weird thing to think about. <laughs> Well, yeah, and I guess, I guess that's why I'm interested. Like, was that something which was that an element? Do you maybe this is too far back to even remember? But like, th- how did that catch your eye when you were younger? Was that side kind of tied into it? Yeah, um, just the alien element, the very strangeness of it. You know, 
I don't think it was, you know. I don't know that I ever really noticed how alien they were. You know what I mean? Like I just grew up with them. They were they were friends and friends are odd sometimes and that's okay. You know? <laughs> that's, that's just how they are. Okay, now really getting excited to you as a kid, okay. <laughs> friends. <laughs> Uh, the yeah okay I just cause I'm just fascinated now because cause we haven't even gone into the swarm intelligence which I am obsessed with but uh, like in terms of that uh, nervous system or that like because yeah I've heard that um, firstly that's how you like giant insects can't exist because their very existence depends on their smallness because of the way they breathe yeah that's one of the main reasons we think that insects aren't as big as they used to be because they need a, because it's the way they don't have lungs in the sense that you know we actively breathe in and we have lungs that distribute oxygen, they have a series of tubes <laughs> that kind of go through their whole body. And so they're totally reliant essentially on diffusion, which is much more passive than actively breathing. And some insects are able to do a little bit more than others and kind of pumping their abdomens to get more oxygen in. But none of it is efficient enough to really allow them to kind of oxygenate a large body. So it really restricts their size. Um, the other thing is probably the way their exoskeletons um, are made out of a material called called chitin. And chitin is very strong when it's small, but as you get kind of bigger, I think the physics of it makes it so chitin becomes a little bit flimsy. So it's also harder for them to get, you know, like really, really enormous. Hmm. That's it. Another one. Watching those movies, you're like, no, nah, that giant ant <laughs> wouldn't happen. <laughs> That's right. Although who knows, maybe it's got a different type of exoskeleton. That's- Evolution's really good at solving problems. So <laughs> That's true. Um, and actually, for, for, I, my whole life I've called it chitin because I've never heard anyone pronounce it out loud before. So <laughs> thank you for that. That's- <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. <laughs> uh- Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. The so okay so with that let's go on to the so the swarm intelligence side of things because I know that's something which you said and I am kind of obsessed yeah like I said low key kind of obsessed with this whole idea because you from what I see this is, seems to be one of the major features of your research and yeah. you talk about how it ties in with both uh, computing and stuff and also with uh, like bio like sort of engineering sort of things um, could you give some more just give a kind of explanation of what it is and yeah how it, yeah kind of go from there. <laughs> Yeah, so swarm intelligence as a field is kind of the idea that you can have 
individual agents. And so those could be ants in a colony or honeybees or cells in a body. And those individual agents themselves don't necessarily need to be super complex um, as far as their problem-solving abilities. But when you put heaps of them together, as a group, they're able to solve things or solve problems that exceed what an individual could do. Um, One of the best examples of that is our brains, really. If you take one neuron out of your brain and you were to examine it having never seen a neuron before, you know, you would never, never think that that single neuron was able to, you know, create language and do podcasts and do calculus and have science and all of these. Those are all equally difficult things, yeah. (laughs) These very difficult things. Um, But when you put billions of neurons together and they communicate just right, all of a sudden you have something that's capable um, of much more than any individual neuron could do. And then that becomes a brain. And, and that's really the core of swarm intelligence. Um, I study it mostly in social insects, so things like ants and honeybees. Um, but I also look at slime molds as well, which are you know, super weird. <laughs> just a um, time, yeah, you are just not just insects, slime as well. <laughs> <laughs> you got you to have the slime. Yeah, yeah, that's fair <laughs> enough, yeah. Um, yeah, and so my, my, a lot of my research is trying to figure out what sort of problems these types of systems are able to solve, um, whether there are any particular constraints to what they can do, and then, of course, I, hopefully, eventually, how they're actually doing it. Right, so is, that, uh, is this field kind of not that well, like there's a lot left in it, I guess? Oh, I mean, I feel like science is just a lot left in it. <laughs> you know, I can't think of a field where anybody's like, yeah, no, we're done. <laughs> let's let's yeah. pack up. It's, I think swarm intelligence can be very difficult because you know, you're often dealing with millions of agents. And even how do you track all of their behaviors is difficult. For things like ants, one of the big problems we have is that a large part of the way they communicate is invisible to us. It's through pheromones and chemical messages. But those chemicals are in very small concentrations. So it's just very difficult to detect them and figure out you know, how they're interpreting them and what they can actually detect. And, and that adds this other layer that makes it very difficult. Um, in that sense, some, in some ways, honeybees are a little bit easier because we we understand and can read their language a little bit better. They also have chemical cues that we don't know much about, but um, in some ways we can get a better sense of what's going by watching them. Right. So for honeybees versus ants, because like, for my, again, this you can tell me, but like basically honey bees and ants are almost the same thing, but one's on the ground and one's like, not in terms of like, I'm saying same thing too casually to a scientist, but in terms of- You saw my expression there. Yeah. Like, let me put it a different way. Um, I remember someone a while ago saying, uh, making teaching me something because I was like, oh, a moth on its own can do way more than an individual bee can, but the bee is by like most measurements a more, don't want to say more evolved, but more advanced example of like, a creature than a moth, even though an individual moth can actually do more. And it was like, because of the fact that bees have developed communities and that's how they kind of operate. And then that's, he was like, that's why ants versus bees. That's why he did that comparison. That's giving you the full grounding Ooh. of where I'm pulling this from. Uh-huh. Try to think where to start okay. there. I've said a lot of things <laughs> wrong at once. I like that. Okay. <laughs> okay. So first thing, I guess, honeybees are one thing. That's one species, but there are many bees, like, 20,000 or something like that number of bee species, and they're not all social. The minority are social. Um, The majority are actually solitary, and so they don't form colonies, and they they live alone. So within bees, we get a huge amount of diversity. Ants are, as far as I know, always social, so we don't really see individual ants kind of going off and making their own way. Um, 
So they're just, yeah, they're, they're quite different. They're in the same group. So they're both in the um, order Hymenoptera, which includes ants, bees, wasps, and sawflies. Um, the wasps are probably, well, probably closer to the ancestral state, if you will. So mm. that the oldest thing was probably more wasp-like, but that doesn't mean that one is more evolved or anything than the other. To, or, I was careful to know. say it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the way I think of it is like wasps, you know, they go for their, they tend to get their protein from animals um, or animal sources, whether that's other insects or, you know, being parasitoids or whatever. Bees are kind of like the vegetarians. Mostly, they mostly get their um, protein from pollen and flowers. Um, ants are almost like wasps that lost their wings and took up farming. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> yeah. But even that's tricky because there's so many different types of ants. Hmm. Um, but quite a lot of them have developed symbioses with other animals, like aphids, for example, where they'll protect colonies of aphids. Um, and in exchange, the aphids produce this, like they basically poop out sugar water. And the ants drink that, and that becomes their main food source. And so they're essentially treating aphids like cattle. Um, wow. So, okay. I love that kind of – yeah, that's that's so cool. <laughs> like, that's um, cool. Leafcutter ants will even do one better, though, because leafcutter ants in the tropics in South America, they harvest leaves. They mash those leaves up into a paste and use that to grow a particular type of fungus. And it's actually the fungus they eat, not the leaves. Um, and if that fungus develops an infection, because often you get other things growing on it, they'll you know carefully weed it out and make sure they just have their one fungus. And some of the ants in that colony have these special parts of their bodies where they're able to grow a symbiotic bacteria that produces an antibiotic that they can use on their fungus if the fungus gets infected with the wrong kind of fungus. So yeah, it's wild. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's just, yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to cut. And this is kind of like, what's hard about like because they don't they don't know anything right <laughs> like even though what well, who does know if do humans know anything i don't even know still the jury's out <laughs> but like how did like to develop those kind of quite complicated uh strategies for survival obviously that develops over millions of years of evolution it's just fascinating and like how much because this is again the example of what you're saying with swarm intelligence no individual ant knows any of this right but it's somehow the swarm together knows this is that right? Yeah, that's the key thing. There's no there's no director in an ant colony or, or a honeybee colony. You know, even though there's a queen, the queen is more like the reproductive parts of the colony. She's not in charge of like telling individuals what to do or how to build the, the nest or any of that. You know, she really is just the reproductive bits. And and they'll in many species they'll kill her and replace her if she's not producing enough larvae uh, or enough eggs. So wow. you know, she's not in charge in How's any French real of them? sense. Revolutionary. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um and there, there is no particularly like smart ant who becomes the one who tells everybody else what to do. They're all acting on relatively local information, you know, what they can see and sense around them. They have relatively simple behaviors like, you know, if this happens, I will do this. Um, but even that is an oversimplification because it depends, again, on the species. And there's a huge range in terms of their individual complexity. I mean, you get some things like honeybees that, you know, can find um, flowers all over the place. They can remember multiple flowers and know when particular flowers are likely to be open and how much you know nectar each flower has. And they can make decisions about which ones to visit Individually, on their you own. Mean? Oh, right, okay. They can come back and then communicate that information to others using a waggle dance, which is amazing. It's like it's like the bee comes back and she'll dance in this kind of figure eight, and the length of the phase where she's shaking her little bee booty, the waggle phase, that translates to the distance 
um, to the particular food source relative to the nest. So it's like a distance measurement. Oh my God. The angle tells the direction of the food source relative to the azimuth of the sun. And the number and excitedness of her tells the others how good she thinks that food source <laughs> really? is. So. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's still a level of it's, excitement covers how delicious it is. Yeah, it's like, this is great. And they're like, yay. And then they can follow that dance. Uh, and using that information, plus any odors she may have on her body that sort of smell like the flower, they can figure out, you know, where that flower is, which is, I mean, as a scientist, it's great because you can rarely like look into the language of another animal and be like, oh yeah, that that bee was foraging over in that direction, roughly five kilometers away. Like you can, you can do that with honeybees and you can't do it with many other animals really. Um, but that's a level of cognitive complexity that's actually pretty sophisticated. Like mm. the individuals are not, they're not stupid animals. You know what I mean? They're not robots. They're only doing very simple things. They can do a lot of complexity. It's just that this swarm intelligence is like another level on top of it. Um, and you get huge ranges in animals. I mean, I've worked with some ants that are honestly the thickest organism like they just they don't know anything on their own you put one by itself and it essentially just walks in circles like it's it's sad you know? yeah are you saying like the individual ant within the group some are dumber and some are smarter or you're saying no, just no, the whole they're species? all equally dumb <laughs> you know, none of them are doing very much and in some species but then in other species you watch them and again individuals are navigating they're finding food you know they've memorized their whole visual environments so they can get back to the nest on their own so there's huge variation. And I think that's, again, one of the things that makes insects a really interesting model to think about swarm intelligence, because you have this range from really simple agents to relatively complex agents that are themselves part of an even more complex thing. Um, you have different behaviors, different communication strategies, different environments they evolved in. Um, yeah, it's no. a lot. There's a lot going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I, that's, and like, I guess probably for basic kind of understanding of the m more fundamental elements if you want to put it that way of swarm intelligence will be easy with those more basic insects because like they're more they're not doing as much so you don't have as many variables <laughs> to have to deal with if you know what i mean to look at the developing yeah, system i mean they're all they're all they all have their pros and cons i mean honeybees are easier in the sense that we because we keep them domestically like there a lot of the methods to look after them are worked out and we kind of already know a lot about them because they've been studied really intensively for a long time so even though the individuals are more complex in a lot of ways they're relatively easy to work with. Whereas, you know, one of the other species we work with are Australian meat ants. Um, and I think, I suspect an individual meat ant is probably not as smart as a bee, but, you know, they're very difficult to work in because they live in colonies with millions of individuals that can be several meters into the ground. So you can't bring them into the lab easily. Um, and they're just, you know, you can't really see their communication systems because a lot of it is pheromonal and, you know, they're, they're, they're tricky to work with, but also really interesting. Yeah, well, like so, I guess uh, as part of that, so because I, I hear this whole concept of swarm intelligence, uh, emergent like intelligence from nothing, I guess, and it, it's obviously there's a huge deal at the moment or the last twenty years looking at uh, the very concept of algorithms within computing and stuff like that, and how much when does that start being a brain in some weird way? But I also think it's probably got a lot of interest as well from an economic point of view, and I'm not saying you're going to learn anything from economics, but the idea of individual agents as a collective being something else. Um, so I get, I don't know, does that ever come into your research at all? Any thoughts like that? Yeah. I mean, we, I think have stolen a lot from behavioral economics because I think well, behavioral economics is reasonably good at trying to think of, you know, what, what would be the best way to solve this particular problem? Like logically, if you were a totally logical consumer, um, you know, what should you do to do this problem? And we can kind of take those ideas and look at how they work in other systems. So, 
for example, one of the ideas we've worked on is something called um, the decoy effect. And this is where, you know, you imagine, say, you walk into a bar and there's two different, you know, food options. One looks really delicious, like really expensive ingredients, but it's also really pricey. The other option looks terrible. Like it's really bad. You can tell it's really cheap. It's not going to be good, but it doesn't cost very much. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, reasonably you could choose either of those two dishes or those two restaurants or whatever. Um, It's just a trade-off between, you know, cost and quality. And so let's say you go, I'm going to get the cheap one because, you know, I'm just going to save some money. It's fine. So then imagine you go into the same restaurant the next day. You know, you're just as hungry. You've got the same amount of money in your pocket. Nothing has changed except when you get to the front, there's a third menu item. And it also looks terrible, like just cheap items, like just looks horrid, but it's twice as expensive um, as the other options were. So super expensive. What most people or many people will do in that situation is you look at that really expensive item and go, well, if I'm going to pay that much money for a terrible meal, I might as well have a good meal, right? Because that makes sense in our brains. And so we might choose the more expensive item. Um, Now, economists would say that that is an irrational choice. Because you don't actually want the more expensive crummy option. So it shouldn't figure into your decision at all. You should keep the, the same choice you made before because the other item is totally irrelevant. Um, and we know from human studies that humans fall for the decoy effect all the time, whether it's like, you know, that really expensive wine on the menu that you're like, why would anybody buy that wine? It doesn't look that good. Well, it's not there for you to buy it. It's there to kind of make you buy, you know, something else or you know, a phone plan that makes no sense because it's really expensive and actually not very good and, and all these sorts of um, ideas. And so one of the explanations for why this effect happens could be that it's something to do with the way our brains work and you know, our values and, you know, the way we value various things. And so we saw these studies and I thought, well, I wonder if slime molds would fall for this <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, slime molds have no brains. You know, they're just an enormous <laughs> amoeba. So if you imagine like, I don't know, moving snot. That's pretty much what a slime mold is. Um, They don't have organs. They don't have a nervous system. They are really just enormous amoebas. Um, But they're interesting because we knew from previous work by um, researchers that they can do things like solve mazes, which again is pretty shocking given that this thing has no brain. Um, Right? I know. It's, it's, (laughs) so we decided to see like, are slime molds susceptible to this decoy effect? And you can do that because slime molds love oatmeal. I don't know why. It's not something they find in their environment. They just, they love oatmeal. And you can like grind oats up and make like really concentrated oatmeal foods or, you know, foods that just have a little bit of oatmeal and a lot of nothing else. And so one is valued over the other. And, you know, if you give a slime mold a choice between a really concentrated oat source and a very low concentrated one, it'll almost always choose the high quality one, which makes sense. Um, slime molds are also scared of light, which I'm convinced is the only reason they haven't taken over the world. <laughs> like okay. They're hiding in the shadows. And so what you can do is set up situations where there's like a really um, high concentration oatmeal item, but it's in the light versus a less, you know, a less concentrated one in the dark. And now you've kind of set up that trade-off. So slime mold has to take that trade-off. And we knew from experiments we did a few years ago that if you do that, the slime mold will typically only choose the item in the light if it's at least three to five times as good as the option in the dark. So it's able to take in information about um, the risk of eating that food source and the relative quality of that food source and then make you know what seems like a good decision. Yeah. Um, and so knowing that, it was relatively easy to kind of set up exactly the same kind of thing that you know I was saying with the restaurants where there's you know a reasonably high concentration oatmeal um, disc in the light and one that's 
um, sorry, lower concentration, but in the dark. And then a third item that's like in the light and crummy. And so if slime molds are behaving rationally, they should just avoid that item, right? Because it's, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. And that's what I thought they would do. So full disclosure, my whole point of doing this experiment was that at the end, I'd be able to say like, look, slime molds are more rational than humans. They make better decisions because that's yeah. what I thought would happen. Nope. Slime molds fell for the decoy effect just like humans. <laughs> so just like people, they saw that option and they're like, no, 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 actually, I'll take the other one. Which, that's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> So it just comes down to, I guess, I mean, I guess the immediate thing I think is like uh, it's an environmental calculation thing where you're like, it's adding more information. So all of a sudden you're like, this is how you measure it based on the circumstances. I don't know. That's maybe, I mean, we don't really know. I mean, the best, I think the best hypothesis for this is that um, under most circumstances, making a decision by comparing all the items and just kind of doing that sort of comparative choice, it probably makes sense under most situations. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of organisms may have evolved those kinds of mechanisms because they're easier than doing those calculations, like you know, actually doing what you would have to do to calculate which one is the best. And under 99% of the time, you know, that'll give you the exact same answer as this like rule of thumb that they seem to be using. It's just that when we really set up to mess them up, we can study to see that they're not actually um, doing what we call absolute value valuation, where they're actually computing all the like mm. options and then being like, mm, well, this one, okay, this one. They're actually doing something that's probably a little bit more like a rule of thumb. What I think is fascinating is that to me, what it suggests is that whatever you know algorithms we're running in our brains, you know, the slime molds are probably running something similar, but just like on completely different hardware, <laughs> essentially. So like there's some deep similarities between the way that a brain works and a slime mold works. Um, and other researchers have found that, say, honeybees are susceptible to these effects as well and ant colonies. And so, you know, there, there's something going on that may, links all of these different ways of processing information. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> I, I get, that's amazing. And like, again, and just... <laughs> Because I've got to, we've got to reference the book again somehow. But like the idea of an alien intelligence that you're trying to talk to, this is the kind of thing that makes you go, "Oh, we can." There maybe is more similarities there than maybe some people realize. Sometimes, like as in in terms of comprehension, I guess in some way. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I always when I think about like, would we be able to communicate with an intelligent alien if we ran into one? I don't know because, geez, there's so many alien things on Earth that we have no idea how to – we can't even communicate with, like, dolphins properly. You know, and they're, relatively speaking, just – like, they're not that different from us, really, compared to, say, an insect or something else. So in that sense, oh, I don't know. Um, but I love the optimism <laughs> of the book to be like, yes, we'll figure out something that'll work and we'll get together and we'll save – you know, we'll save our planets. Like that's, I don't know if I buy it. <laughs> that may have required me to suspend my disbelief a little bit, but I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice way to, <laughs> yeah. You'll take it for that sort of thing there. Right. Okay. Um, is there, I guess, uh, just quickly one last thing before we tie off uh, to go back to the swarm uh, intelligent thing. And uh, cause I'm just, again, I'm just fascinated by this topic <laughs> so much, but I guess, is there more correlations between like, how else are humans like slime? I guess, like, as in, or, or thinking more like maybe an ant colony or something. Actually, for, on a side, just a quick one: do different do different ant colonies, even of the same species, would they have what you would term as a personality? Yeah, but we don't really know why. It's, okay, that's so, okay. Weirdly enough, even so, slime molds, <laughs> is... for example, to go back to them, 
you know, even of the same species. Oh my god! Yeah, I okay. mean, you get you get so with the meat ants, for example, we get some colonies that are just bitey. Why are they bitier and angrier than the colony over there? I don't know. You know, and when we run experiments, it's not like every colony does the same thing in the same treatment. We'll be giving them the exact same same problem to solve, and they'll do it differently. So even within a species. There's differences, but even within a slime mold. So slime molds are weird because you can cut them into as many bits as you want. And each of those bits, once it's severed from the main cell, becomes its own individual. Like within a few minutes, it's doing all the things um, that a whole cell would do. And then if you put them back together again a few days later, they become the same individual again. They just remerge. So really, I mean, they're not even just clones. Like when we cut them into lots of bits, we're not even just making clones. Like this literally was the same individual like 10 minutes ago. Mm. And even then, those little bits don't do the same thing. So we'll have them in the same treatment and we'll get different results across, you know, the 10 of them. Why? I don't know. (laughs) You know, is there something, some small difference in the way we cut them into bits? You know, we try to match them so that they're all the same size, but... You know, maybe there's something slightly different that we did, but I mean, I don't know. I don't know why they're doing different things. That's okay. That's, I mean, this is just all such an indictment of humans thinking they have anything (laughs) (laughs) or anything. So that's, I didn't, I didn't. Yeah. It's basically how I end when I teach first year biology. The last one is like, well, basically we know nothing. <laughs> they yeah. haven't taught you anything at the end of the class. It's that we don't know anything about anything. Yeah, I mean that's that's what I'm I'm getting because that's what, yeah like I guess because what I was going to ask was whether the the way swarm can it be reflected in human societies, but I guess we just. just I mean, I like say. to think we can take certain bits of swarm intelligence and use that to make things better for us. So I think we can sort of extract stuff, um, especially because I think the way we're going now with you know the internet and social media and the way we're so connected, we're we're kind of reaching the point that we almost are a super organism. Like there's, there's these emergent behaviors that we see happening that we may not mean to do, but you see this with like Twitter panics and things where something will happen and and that starts to reflect in the way we behave in the real world. And I think that's just going to keep going the more and more we become more connected to one another and we're able to communicate with like the whole world at once, essentially. Um, I think, that's very difficult for humans to even get our heads around because we are such like hierarchical creatures. We're used to having like a leader and that leader tells other people what to do. And, and that's, we're moving away from that as a society. And I think if we're going to move away from that, it's useful to look at um, organisms that have had that kind of a, a way of living for a really long time because they've had time to evolve stuff like how do you prevent the spread of misinformation in a system? Like that's a problem we're having now. You know, social insects have had to have ways of solving that because there's always going to be that bee that comes back and is like, there's a flower over there, guys. And you get there and that flower is gone. You know, and if you don't have some way of being able to weed that out, all the bees are going to go to that flower. Really? And that's not good for the colony. Yeah. Um, and you see that with like very occasionally with army ants where under very specific situations, because army ants lay a trail, a chemical trail and other ants follow that, what will happen very, very rarely is they kind of end up in a circle. And so they just kind of keep walking in that circle because they're following the trail, but the trail's going in a circle. So they lay more, more pheromone, which makes it more attractive, which sucks in more ants. And you get these death mills, they're called, or death spirals of ants. Just keep walking in circles till they die. Um, mm. And that's essentially misinformation run amok, where there's been a mistake and that mistake is propagated to everybody and now they're all dead. Um, but what's remarkable about that is that it's rare. It doesn't happen that often. It's a very, very unusual to see that. And so it seems like social insects have come up with 
evolved mechanisms in the way they've organized their society to prevent those kinds of misinformation cascades from happening in the first place. And so I think it's reasonable to say, like, why don't we look at how they do it? And maybe, you know, some things they do are not going to be applicable to us, but maybe we can find a few ideas and some inspiration to kind of develop better systems. Yeah. I mean, again, it sounds like, obviously, I don't know anything, but uh, the decentralization element uh, is a big factor in that because you can always have localized things that can make mistakes, but then it can get repaired as long as, yeah, if it's all separate in that sense. It's weird. Yeah. The more separate you are, the more together you are in a weird way because like, yeah. Okay. That's, that's very cool. <laughs> yeah um awesome well i mean we've kind of danced for well away. actually I, I speaking of sci-fi as well though because you did mention the idea of human beings becoming a super organism so just like neurons become a brain humans become some sort of larger thing than itself which people can't wrap their heads or i agree people can freak out with that because they're like i'm an individual <laughs> <laughs> which is so is an ant <laughs> on its own but uh, i think the cool thing there is also the idea of that gaia um hypothesis theory where like we all we are the Earth's, uh, like. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Being that we then spread to other planets and that's why we kind of become, uh, yeah, the Earth's shooting off and propagating somewhere else, which is kind of a sci-fi idea, I think, which is cool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I guess, yeah, uh, we should finish. Is there anything you want to shout out before we go? Anyone should look up anything anywhere? Um. No, I mean, I guess I, I try to end everything by saying, like, I know we've talked a lot about insects and how awesome they are, but they are in trouble. And we do know that it, one of the problems with them being so alien is that we don't really, most people don't connect with them on the same level they connect with koalas. So, you know, if there's one thing you take away, it's that insects are important and they're amazing and awesome and worthy of our conservation. So, you know, don't step on things, you know try to think about insects because the first step to kind of conserving them is to care. Um, and that, that's something I think that our society struggles with a little bit. So yeah, go out, just even go out, stare at a flower for a while, watch the insects, you know, kind of get that connection um, because we need that. We need that. No, that's uh, very true. And hopefully we can get maybe someone to look at that next time. Yeah. Just look at <laughs> even just how they fly around and yeah, be like, cool. Um, awesome. Well, thanks very much. Uh, Dr. Tanya Laddie, thank you very much for being on the show. Yeah, no worries. Thank you for having me. No worries. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to sanspantsplus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's sanspantsplus.com.